Hi, I'm Micah Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center. This is the ATC Double Cut, where I give a second treatment, a double cut, to some of the topics that I've written about on my blog. Today, I'm going to talk about Seashore Paspalum, and I'm excited to have a guest joining me. It is John Wall, the golf course superintendent at BRG Da Nang Golf Resort in Vietnam. Welcome to the show, John. Good evening, Micah. Thank you for having me. It is a great pleasure to have you and to have you at this time because I understand that you are hosting a professional golf tournament this coming week and we're recording this on a Sunday night in Asia and in, woo, I don't know, 12 hours or so from now, the first practice round begins. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We have the Asian Development Tour here, which is the first professional tournament, uh, international professional tournament to take place in Vietnam since 2015. So it's kind of a big deal for, for us, our company, our club and uh, golf in Vietnam. That is exciting. How is the weather forecast for the coming week? dry and hot so really good uh, conditions to have a tournament i am glad to hear that um yeah you kindly shared some of your uh, your data sheet or, or your data with me with with the weather data and some of the inputs and some of the grass responses and uh i saw it rained about 50 millimeters um on August 19th or 20th, and then it's been dry since? Yes, that's right. Yeah, if, if we do get rain in the summer, it's one quick dump, and then it moves on and you know returns back to being hot and dry. But generally, we're, we're fairly dry for the, well, through the, the whole of the summer. We really have two seasons, wet season, dry season. I would like to talk with you about the tournament preparation but in keeping with the theme of the show and the title of the ATC Double Cut, can we give one of my blog posts that is somewhat relevant to your situation a double cut treatment um, talking about a post that I've called, or I've given it the title of Correcting a Common Misapprehension About Seashore Paspalum. Have you read this post? Yes, certainly have in the past. Wonderful. I thank you for reading that. And uh, it's one that I used to be much more passionate about this issue. Um, but it's because Seashore Paspalum was used so widely in Southeast Asia from about 2000 up to something like 2015. And I thought a lot of times it was used in the wrong places or, or for the wrong reasons. And I read this article in 2012 when I came back from Japan. Uh, I spent a sabbatical in Japan. I came back home to Thailand and I read this article in Golf Course Architecture magazine that Adam Lawrence had written. And he, he'd done a review of a Mazagan golf resort in Morocco. And I was struck by a particular passage that he wrote about the characteristics of Seashore Paspalum and how it should be maintained. And the quote I put in this blog post from his article was this, I quote, uh, Paspalum is capable of delivering a fast and bouncy surface, but it needs to be kept dry and lean or it becomes sticky with chip shots catching in the fringes and an aerial approach, the only sensible option. Now, I was struck by that, uh, particularly the part where he's saying that it should be kept dry and lean, because my experience in Southeast Asia had been that if you keep seashore paspalum dry and lean, it eventually gets overtaken by weeds and other grasses. So it, I, I said in, in my blog post, I said, such a maintenance strategy does not work with seashore paspalum. Sure, now, I would just I, could I just jump in, Micah, and just yes, yes, I, you I agree because... with your point, but at the same time, if you flip it over and if you keep paspalum too wet and overly fed, I would argue you could see 
invasive grasses come in just as quickly because you're providing conditions for you know alternative grasses to you know make themselves known within your paspellum surface that's a good point and um let's um for people that don't know you john or, or don't know some of the places you've worked um let's establish your seashore paspalum credentials which are um superior to mine so uh it's hong kong golf club where you manage seashore paspalum fairways then in uh, northern vietnam in in haiphong that's uh, right yeah it was wall to wall sea spray in haiphong and then down in uh da nang you've managed it on a nursery and then now on putting greens for 36 holes that's correct right so um i've grown seashore paspalum in a uh research area and i've observed it and measured it on scores of golf courses but uh i certainly haven't managed it on a day-to-day year-to-year basis like you have so um i i will ask you to continue to point out where i perhaps am taking the wrong tack or or I've failed to appreciate something. Sure. I think if, if we, depends how generous you want to be with your interpretation of the author's words. I mean, when he says dry, I mean, I, I like to keep Paspalum dry in the sense of, I like to maximize the time that the leaf is kept dry. Um, so a lot of most courses in South, Southeast Asia under hot conditions without rain, will water once, twice, three times a day in some cases, and I'm not endorsing that. Um, But I do my absolute level best to restrict irrigation onto Paspalum to once a day, uh, purely for disease prevention. And the what particular disease would you be most worried about or are there multiple diseases? Uh, there, there are certainly multiple diseases, but uh, predominantly it would be dolospot. Okay. So um, I think something else that I recall from this particular blog post is I, um, I think there was a perception uh, 15 years ago or so that seashore paspalum didn't need so much water that it was incredibly drought tolerant and there was a lot of blaming of superintendents for applying irrigation and people like golf course architects or golf riders or people who may not be experts about growing grass were criticizing superintendents for applying water to seashore paspalum and making statements like you should keep it dry and lean. This grass is is great. I'm I'm paraphrasing now. Yeah, I understand. Um, but but my feeling was people were being criticized for trying to keep a grass alive that is quite difficult in this type of climate to keep alive. If you um, if you're familiar with Siam Country Club's old course in near Pattaya in Thailand, that course was seashore paspalum fairways and rough. And if you go there now, the paspalum just kind of goes away um, because it hasn't been a, been maintained with a rapid enough growth rate to keep up with the other grasses that are invading. Yeah, I think. No, you. Sorry, and, just I think the fact that paspalum puts down deeper roots than Bermuda leads people to jump to the conclusion that oh, deeper roots don't need to water it as much. I th- I get the feeling it has been as simple as as that that there's a perception that because it has deeper roots or or is that is that true that that i, I would i would 100 percent say that paspalum roots more deeply than bermuda yeah i would say that that tends to be the case also but if it if it has deeper roots that doesn't necessarily uh have anything to do with the water use rate no no that's i'm i'm not suggesting that that's true as a result but to a someone who you know doesn't read turf textbooks for fun um i i think the the easiest interpretation is 
deeper roots, therefore less water is required. Hmm. That they could be uh, that uh, that could be. I, I think people sometimes get confused about grasses, like like with zoysia. Zoysia looks so good, and it it's resistant to to drought up to a point, and then it does pretty poorly with drought. So anytime there's an experiment, see, uh, zoysia does quite poorly with drought. Bermuda does quite well. But you can talk to golf course architects or golf course builders or even some golf course superintendents, and they have this perception in their mind that zoysia needs less water than Bermuda. But actually, it's the other way around. So sometimes these uh, ideas get spread through the industry, and it certainly was with Seashore Paspalum, that it should be kept dry and lean. And I thought that was a bit critical uh, by implication it was a bit critical of the way golf course superintendents were managing and but to my mind you have to manage it with the right amount of water to maintain enough of a growth rate in order to keep the other weeds from invading too much yeah i mean you're you're you should never be managing a grass destructively as in you should never really be testing it to the point where it dies from from drought um so yeah i understand you know one grass will be better than another species of grass under extreme stress conditions but ideally you're maintaining your you know your surface is much you know closer to the middle of the bell curve let's say so let's transition to talk about why you chose paspalum the uh, at your current facility. So this is the BRG Da Nang Golf Resort, which started off as Da Nang Golf Club with the Norman course that was planted to Bermuda grass greens. So what happened that you uh, changed to Seashore Paspalum? And the Nicholas course, you've got 36 holes there, the newer Nicholas course uh, was that planted to Bermuda grass originally also? And then you changed? Uh, nine holes originally, yes. So okay. it was built nine holes at a time across, uh, well, two years apart. So, yes, originally the Norman course was wall-to-wall -wall Bermuda with Tiff Dwarf on the greens. And then once the construction of the Nicholas began, that actually el eliminated the water source or one of the water sources for the Norman course which meant that we obviously had to find a new one, which was the uh, adjacent river. The Because we're on the ocean, that river can be salty during the summer when the river is not being replenished with rainwater from the hills. So as a result of that, knowing that, you know, we, we had to take water from this river and we may be in situations where, you know, the water may be 50% seawater, then... Uh, it, it was decided that as an insurance, we would go with Paspalum at least on greens because resurfacing greens can be done in three months, whereas 18 holes is a more expensive, more labor-intensive, uh, time-intensive task. And the variety of seashore Paspalum that you used on the regrassing project was which one? Uh, unofficially platinum. <laughs> unofficially okay <laughs> um i've got a picture can i i'll bring up a picture that you sent me and and show the greens pri when they were still bermuda grass so sure, they were so going this is tiff dwarf bermuda with uh, a large quantity of off types within it um this is from july 2019 and um, I can remember, because I've got it written on my whiteboard, that our leaching requirement to keep the salts moving down through the profile at this time of year was 43%. And our daily ET was in the region of five to five and a half millimeters per day. Wow. So, yeah, that's a huge leaching fraction or leaching requirement. It's uh, more common with the types of salinity levels that that uh, I often see to have a leaching requirement, something around 10% or, or 20%, but 43% is, is a lot. So I can imagine you're 
your quantity of salt in the water, whether that's an electrical conductivity or whether it's the total dissolved solids, was something extremely high. Do you do you recall that that number also? Uh, I, I eight. I <laughs> and eight is uh, about as eight and eight eight and a half was about the highest that we got. That's the EC in decisiemens per meter. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, a as a rule of thumb, excuse me, one can multiply the EC by six hundred forty to come up with the uh, estimate of the total dissolved solids. So, if you take eight times six hundred and forty, we're somewhere around five thousand to fifty-five hundred parts per million. Uh, which is a substantial amount of salt, because what that means is if you would take one liter of water and evaporate the water out of it, you would be left with five or five and a half grams of salt, dry salt. So every time you apply one liter of water to one square meter, that's got five grams of salt in it. And you think you mentioned those ETs, which were five let's say the ET was five millimeters per day, that's five liters per square meter of water that the plant uses and that needs to be replaced. So if each liter of water has five grams of salt in it and you're adding five liters of water, that's 25 grams of salt per square meter, which is about uh, five pounds per thousand square feet for those more familiar with those units. So that's for a single irrigation event, you're putting five pounds mm. of salt per thousand square feet, which is a lot. And we, we're extremely lucky that we have a very, well, a, an excellent sand that, you know, it's it's basically beach sand. Um, so we drain straight through. So yes, as horrible as the irrigation water was, you couldn't have asked for a better uh, root zone to deal with that water. Do you have drainage underneath or it just goes down through the sand that's very oh, deep? These are just native sand push-up greens. So it's a, it's a pretty fine, finer than uh, USGA spec recommendations. Okay. But the grass does get stressed and you have to use so much water and all the electricity involved with pumping that and so on. So you decided, let's solve the problem by regrassing to seashore paspalum, which has increased salinity tolerance over Bermuda grass. Yes. And then you've had, how old are your oldest greens and how old are your youngest uh, greens? So at this stage, our Nicholas greens are just over two years old and our Norman greens are just over one years old. Okay. And what course, or is it a composite course being played for the tournament this week? The tournament this week is entirely over the Nicholas course. Oh, wow. That is a visually stunning course. I had a chance to visit there. I think maybe just nine holes were open when I visited mm. in August of 2019. Yeah, that would have been nine holes only. And well, maybe the construction of the of the second nine were was being undertaken at that time. But uh, yeah, now it's now it's, of course, fully open. And uh, yeah, we're ready to go. Well, good. I've brought up a picture. Um, I don't know what hole this is, but this is uh, somewhere on the Nicholas course. How do you manage these greens to have such a consistent color um, on relatively young greens and sand that doesn't have so much organic matter content and presumably not so much nutrient supplying capacity? Um, what do you do for fertilizer and that sort of thing? I mean, as far as consistency of color goes, of course, any application you make, you want to be as consistent as possible. So, you know, we measure off any any granular applications, but it's not something I consciously think about. I actually, and I was having this conversation with someone earlier this week, um, I prefer Paspalum to be a bit yellow, especially with the Bermuda everywhere else. The yellow, you know, if you're not spraying iron on your Paspalum, then it's going to be having a, a yellow appearance. And I really like that that contrast whereas other people like a you know a heavy you know ferrous application to match or even go darker than the surrounding bermuda so anyway uh to go back to uh, your main question of 
how you know our fertilizer programs compared to Bermuda, which was uh, I was always a traditional kind of a regular spoon feeding liquid nitrogen program. With the Paspalum, I am much more infrequent, granular, low nitrogen applications every four to six weeks, depending on our growth rate. And the what's the reason for taking that approach where you previously with Bermuda grass were doing frequent liquid applications and now you change to infrequent granular? Um, I mean, with, with the Bermuda, it was just, I, I f always found Bermuda to be quite an emotional grass. So I always liked the spoon feeding approach. The Paspalum, I, again, this is anecdotal. I find that I can keep a finer leaf texture with a granular program um, rather than a regular liquid nitrogen application program. And you mentioned the color and you shared the data sheet with me. The mowing heights right now are less than two millimeters. If I read that sheet correctly. Yeah, we're, we're all, all greens across 36 holes are at 1.8 mm and have been most of this summer. That is, that is pretty short. And I think that might, um, allow you to have that color contrast because when you cut off so much leaf, um, I think visually it should have a, a more of a yellow type appearance, which to me is also quite attractive because it looks like the green has faster ball roll and it looks more like a, uh, a fast surface. Yeah, I would agree. And so, uh, is that, you said that's been your mowing height all summer. Um, and you keep it the same for the tournament. Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, I've never really been one to chop and change too much with, with greens mowing heights. Um, I think we could go lower, um, but I don't have a need to, to go lower. Our speeds are going to be fine this week. The Asian tour don't want the greens too fast. Uh, the greens on the Nicholas course are extremely undulating, um, which one, well, I think it can actually restrict how low we can go. We're still fine at 1.8. The Paspalum tolerates that really well. But if you start to go too much lower with the amount of undulation, I think you will run into some scalping just purely off the topography. How often do you change bed knives at that type of mowing height? Uh, quite regularly. We're every two to three days at the moment. Brand new bed knives. Yes. So you've sent through a series of pictures that I'm going through. You showed, uh, one with a roller. How, how often do you roll the grains? Um, and what are you planning to do during the tournament week? Um, well, the, the that roller is brand new. That's uh, fresh out the crate. We've, we've not had a sideways roller at any point in the last six years. So, uh, I'm very happy to finally have my hands on one of those because getting speed on pass palum requires more work than it does on Bermuda, I think, as uh, anyone who's ever dealt with warm season grasses understands. Mm -hmm. So our, our program this week, I mean, I will, you know, tailor it based on speed. It is fairly bog standard. It's a simple double cut in the morning and followed by one or two rolls, depending on what's required. And then for our evening maintenance, it will purely be based off, off the morning performance or the data that we gather in the afternoon after play. So that might just be a single cut or a single roll or maybe nothing at all. Splendid. Well, it's nice to have a roller. I find that an essential piece of equipment if one's able to get it in the shop. So these, these greens are dealing with the salinity in the water now with with no problem and do you still apply a leaching fraction of some sort because uh, no, we're 
the ironic thing is that since we've installed the Paspalum, we haven't had a summer where the salts have climbed super high. Um, but they will at some point in the future. And when they do, then, you know, we will be prepared, prepared for them. And I take it you're monitoring your irrigation water pretty frequently then. Yeah, we have a simple EC meter. So uh, once a week, uh, Mr. Moy, who is our irrigation manager, uh, he will test the lakes, he'll test the river just so we know where we are. And then we, you know, we soil test every six months. But, you know, that's not my main, uh, you know, piece of information as far as, uh, you know, water quality goes, of course. Right. Yeah. I, When you're in that kind of situation, I think weekly testing is quite uh, essential because it's, you can't see the salt, right? I, I tell people that you, if you're going to be irrigating your turf with irrigation water, you should know what's in it because the bad things, the potentially bad things that could be in the water are not visible. So unless you measure them, you, you could be poisoning your grass without knowing it. Yeah, sure. I mean, everyone looks at the fertilizer bag label and if, if your irrigation water arrived in, you know, like fertilizer does in bags and you read the label, well, of course you would read the label. That's my point. So, uh, yes. Yes. So this is uh, another image of a sunrise or a sunset. Or yeah, it's morning. Morning. So, yeah, the course is looking good. I, is this going to be streamed on YouTube or... Um, televised at all or or how yes how to my one... understanding it's going to be streamed live on youtube and also televised nationally on one of the uh one of the whichever channel i'm not not a big tv viewer so i uh, i'm not sure which <laughs> yeah i i can understand i also don't uh really watch on tv so well, that's cool. I'll try to catch some of it on YouTube. The nice stuff, the nice thing about stuff that's streamed on YouTube is if you can't catch it live, you can also um, catch some of the highlights later. Um, now, are there going to be spectators out there? Yes, yes, it's it's ticketed. Um, it's been well marketed uh, around Da Nang and just within the golf community in in Vietnam in general. So we are encouraging as many spectators as possible. Um, but again, in, in Southeast Asia, it's kind of hard to encourage people to one, be in the sun and to spend multiple hours outside when it's, you know, 34 degrees Celsius. Yes, <laughs> I so understand. I think, uh, the spectators will, you know, driving range where it's covered and they can watch the players or they'll find a tree to sit under or they'll just go to the holes nearest the clubhouse. But, uh, I don't expect to see many on the far side of the course. And do you know um, how many Vietnamese players will be in the field? Uh, we have the national team, the junior team. I, I would say about close to 40. Wow. That's wonderful. I, I'm waiting for some Vietnamese golfers to start uh, making, a, making their presence known on the international stage. Um, and it, I don't think... It has happened quite yet, but you see countries like Thailand that uh, have so many professional golfers playing around the world. And with all the golf courses in Vietnam, I think there, there must be more young people playing the game and um, eventually joining the ranks of... I think it has to happen eventually, but the current structure of golf in Vietnam is still fairly exclusive. It's for the super rich. Um, you you can't just turn up to a course like I did as a junior with a cheap junior membership rate and play as much golf as you want through a summer. Um, you know, there's carts, there's caddies, there's, there's always a, a large cost associated. So, and maybe that's not exclusive to, to Vietnam, but I, I think that is somewhat restrictive into encouraging um, the next generation to, to play the game. But we might be straying a bit far from Adam Lawrence's past Palom article at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. See, that's the point of the double cut is I, I will put a link to that in the description um, of this 
video or podcast, however you're consuming it. Um, and I think that is quite uh, an interesting one. And I would encourage people to consider that. Um, but I use those blog posts as a starting point. And then, uh, yeah, then we can talk about whatever. And I, I did want to talk about your tournament because I am really happy that you get to host the event and I'm quite curious about it because it seems uncommon to have professional golf events in Vietnam. Um, it's uncommon to have professional golf events played on seashore Paspalum greens. It's, uh, and it's, it's not every day that one of my friends and acquaintances gets to do his first professional event, uh, in, in, uh, I mean, of course you've worked lots of tournaments, but to, to be the person in charge, it's, it's mm, an exciting sure. time. Yes, it is. Can I, can I ask you a question, Michael, which is where, and this is your definition of best, where were the best past Palom greens that you ever saw and what conditions do you think led to them being the best? Hmm. Hmm. I, I, I'm, I haven't seen so many Paspalum greens recently because they have not been, maybe they're common in Vietnam, but they are not so common in Thailand. So I'm going to say, yeah, Amata Spring Country Club in the the late 2000s and I can't remember the exact time um, but they were just consistently quite good and you would have seen some of those Thailand golf championship events which I just saw on television or the Asia Pacific amateur um, and those would have been in the the teens right 2013 2014 that type of era and I think Lee Westwood won that event. But see, I, I didn't attend any of those. And Tiger Woods played an ex exhibition match there. Um, but I'd, I'd been to out to spring in 2006, 2007, 2008, that type of era. The greens were quite good. And I think, um, so that's like me actually seeing them and playing on them and touching them. And then... I know that they were even better and I saw those on television, those other events. Um, and so I'm thinking if I've ever seen better, uh, in person and I'm pretty sure I have not. And then the conditions that led to that, I think it was, uh, sharp mowers, careful irrigation, the right amount of fertilizer and an appropriate amount of salt in the water. Although they then transitioned to a less salty water. They used to have saltier water and then they, they cleaned it up a little bit. Um, but I imagine that the, even their cleaner water did some salt in it. So I've generally found that seashore paspalum with really clean water is not, not ideal. No, but so yeah, could, I mean, could you interpret that as keeping them dry and lean in any way? Um, you know, I'm coming yeah. back to the original question in a, in a roundabout way. Yeah. Uh, they were kept as dry and lean as they could be given that it's seashore paspalum. I, you know, Cameron Thompson, I suppose, or, or will have met him. Yes. Uh, Cameron was the superintendent at Amato to spring in uh, I think 2006 to 2008 or something like that so I used to see him a bit and, and we'd talk about turf grass management he was the superintendent there and he would tell me that he didn't uh, he did on the sprinklers on the greens so he he was saying well these greens haven't received him for three months or something and the temperature's been 36 degrees and they're just plowing right through it but I ask a little bit more and they're 
they're hand watering all the time. So, I mean, for me, if water, it's irrigation, but, um, he, he felt that he was keeping them really dry. But if you have somebody with a hose that's putting water for 30 minutes, um, I, I mean, it's still water, but if, if we want yeah, that's keeping it dry and I mean, clean, then applying water manually is of course, you know, it should be the most accurate way that you can apply water. So I can see his perspective, but I also, you know, see your perspective of, well, you know, it's still water. It's coming out of a hose rather than a sprinkler head. So what's the difference? Right. Is he, he was trying to apply to me or he was, he was telling me that he was just amazed at how this seashore paspalum just didn't need so much water. But I'm looking at it going, well, you're applying water every day. And, uh, you know, like, and he did the, you know, the roots were coming out the bottom of the root zone and it, it did have an extensive root system, but it's still using water. Like if you, um, Oh yeah, sure. It's still, it's still using water, but I, I think I said earlier about, you know, a lot of courses in this part of the world are running heads twice, three times a day. Um, so it, you know, relative to that, you're using a lot less water and you're getting a much better result. It just takes a lot more, you know, monitoring, observing and, and, and you know, manual work to, to get to that point. Yeah, I, I think with Seashore Paspalum, I would like to just apply the correct amount of water. And the, the big problem that I would see with keeping Seashore Paspalum dry, if you keep it so dry that it wilts it can be a long time to recover from wilt and it will wilt and a grass like bermuda grass may not so if you have bermuda grass invading it then if you keep the seashore paspalum dry then you are letting bermuda grass become even more competitive and so i was seeing that type of talk again this is a post that i wrote back in 2012 i was seeing a lot of uh people thinking that if you just keep seashore paspalum dry it will do better but to me dry means um to me dry means something less than the optimal amount of water and the optimal amount of water for me means something that will be site-specific in order to create the growth rate that one wants at that particular site. But if you keep seashore paspalum too dry, it won't, or just dry, um, it well, won't you can grow say fast on the, enough. On the healthy side of dry, you know, of course, if you're keeping something dry, you know, in the dictionary definition, then there is no moisture present. And of course, that is not conducive to good turf conditions. But within you know, talking about like the meat of the bell curve here on the drier side of that will, will yield the correct conditions. Yeah. As usual with uh gas, I don't know if you've watched or listened to me talking with Doug Soldat about um, tissue testing. <laughs> and yeah, I, we, I, you took him to pieces if I was to uh, <laughs> summarize, <laughs> summarize but, that discussion. Well, I, I think that I made a pretty strong argument that if you're not going to do anything with the data, and even after you've done it for five years, you still won't be able to do anything with the data. Perhaps you didn't need to collect it in the first place. Um, but we still kind of agree about it. Um, because as we, it turns out that we only disagree about a very subtle aspect of it. And I think with this talk with you about Seashore Paspalum, you... Uh, kind of steer my thinking and to get me to realize that I kind of agree with you. And uh, yeah, it's just a matter of how we define dry. And if we keep it on the the healthy side of dry, that's what I want. And that's what you want. So we come to an agreement about it. Yeah. And it's precisely the same thing with uh, nutrient input in the, you know, lean. If you're if you're on the extreme side of lean, you're simply not feeding it. And we all know that that doesn't work. But if you're 
you know, on the left side of the bell curve in terms of uh, nutrient application, then you would be considered lean in the grand scheme of things. And with paspalum, that tends to get you better results than being on the other side of the bell curve of heavier nutrient application. Yeah. And with any grass, I think it's important to maintain the growth rate at an optimal level for that grass and season and the type of surface that's, that one is trying to produce. Sure. but And then so just to add a, another point to that dry and lean mentality, and especially with, you know, outside of greens, well, actually it applies everywhere. The So I monitor greens moisture and, you know, we, we can monitor it in the morning and we'll see it in the afternoon and I can see the rate of at which we dry out. And so that can be about 1% per hour um, through the day. Now, as I said earlier, our sand, our soil is extremely, the drainage is extremely good. So we struggle to get above 25% moisture after a rain event, after a heavy irrigation cycle, leave it a couple of minutes, 25% is about where we will be. And then, you know, consider that your morning moisture reading. And then 12 hours later, you'll be 12, 13%. And that is not too far from being uncomfortable um, with with Paspal. And once what we see is when we drop below 10%, you know, you're getting your nines, eights, sevens, you need to be quite careful then. I would not be comfortable uh, seeing those readings in the middle of the day and going home. I, you know, that, that wouldn't be right. So for the tournament this week, I take it if the weather stays hot and dry, you'll be irrigating every day to try to get it to what level in the, at the start of the day? Yeah, I, I would be happy with 24% at the beginning of the day. I, so that's almost field capacity for these young greens. Yes. And again, when you, I mean, when you say field capacity, to, in my mind, I, I see an image of, you know, almost you press your foot on and water comes out. Uh, that's not the case for us at all. You know, we're, we are firm. Um, but yeah, 24%, I would be fine playing a tournament on that and seeing it dry down to 10 or 12% by the end of play. Excellent. And um, you sent me a picture of a sprayer. Is that a growth regulator or a whiting agent? What's what's going out there? Uh, that is uh, iron, chlorothalonil, and Primo Max. Nice. And did I see that you've applied Primo Max about four times in the last week? Uh, I don't know if it's four times in exactly the last week. Generally, my spray schedule uh, <laughs> with Primo Max is twice a week. Um, but then, you know, if I'm looking to cut down on growth and uh, increase color, then uh, then I might chuck in an extra spray. So, as I said earlier, I prefer yellow paspalum, but at the moment we're dealing with a little bit of fairy ring. And so I've increased the iron quite a lot to just mask mask any stuff that might look at slightly unsightly on camera. Okay. Let's see if we've got any more images here. Yeah. What, what, do you know what, what's this one showing? Oh, that's actually one from today. Just, uh, the pin placement for, from tomorrow, but, uh, I, I included it in the ones I sent just to show off of, uh, texture. Okay. Nice. Let me try to make this bigger for those who are watching this. I'll make this full screen, which gets a little, a little bit bigger, right? So, when I look at this on my computer screen, John, um, I can't tell if it's Paspalum or Bermuda because the texture and the color looks so fine. And that certainly looks like a smooth and slick surface. Yes. I, so, and actually, well done since to you and your team. One, one thing I do think that is under discussed with Paspalum is how smooth of a surface it is. I find Paspalum actually more pleasurable to putt on a good paspalum green, I should say, than Bermuda. I feel like if I aim at something and I hit it on that line, it will stay on that line and hit exactly where I want. I do not have that confidence on a Bermuda green. And do you think there's less grain? It, like what's happening on the Bermuda green to move it offline? Yeah, I mean, I mean Bermuda is a grainier grass. Paspalum can still have grain on, you know, on slopes and depending on how it's managed, but I have far more confidence putting on a Paspalum green. 
Excellent. Well, I imagine that the pros will enjoy putting on these Paspalum greens this week. Um, you play golf around Vietnam quite a bit. I've seen on your Twitter page, um, you've done some unsolicited or what do you call that? Un, unre, unrequested reviews of All right. <laughs> your well, tour? You know, no one's beating down the door to hear reviews of unheard of Vietnamese golf courses. But uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting to me to see different architecture, different grasses, maintenance regimes. Um, it, you know, even if a course is bad, it's still interesting in some way. Can you help help me out with the approximate number of courses in Vietnam today that are open for play? I would say in the region of 70. 70. And and it's, it's hard to nail it down exactly because a lot of courses are under construction or in various stages of opening or pre-opening, but around 70 is, is a fairly safe bet. And of those 70, uh, what's the grass breakdown of putting greens? You, you've got- uh, starting with the least, I mean, more courses are adopting zoysia, you know, some of the newer varieties of zoysia. So couple of the newer courses have that and i'm sure there are more in the pipeline as well predominantly it will be bermuda and of course you have your courses built between 2003 to 2015 which were in, you know during that time paspalum was fashionable popular uh, well marketed however you want to phrase it um so yeah i, I don't know the exact percentages but it's a, it's a good number Right. So maybe uh, 10 to 20 courses would have Paspalum greens. Yes. Uh, would would be a reasonable guess. Yes. More more than 10, less than 30, I would, I would guess. Okay, good. And then for fairways, is there a lot of Paspalum or what's the grass breakdown? If we look at the courses that are open already... Could you uh, say there, there was more Paspalum in the past than it's since been invaded and is now either Bermuda, signal grass, carpet grass, uh, sedge, whatever, whatever else grows. Um, I would say it's in the same proportion as, as the greens. And, and what you just mentioned is something that you might understand. You understand where I'm coming from, where I'm criticizing people for, uh, or I'm, I was criticizing Adam Lawrence for saying um, that you should maintain seashore paspalum to be dry and lean because I'd seen so many courses in Thailand and other parts of Southeast Asia try to maintain seashore paspalum in fairways and rough, dry and lean, and it just it speeds up the conversion away from paspalum to other grasses. And... Um, We've talked a lot about greens, and I'm in agreement with you that seashore paspalum on greens with the right amount of irrigation, low mowing height, um, and not over-fertilizing it so that the organic matter stays under control leads to a smooth, fast in, fast enough, um, and firm surface. But I think it's quite difficult to maintain the entire property like that. Yes, and something that maybe we should have should raise more in regards to Adam Lawrence's article is that he was visiting a course in Morocco. I'm not well traveled enough to have visited Morocco before, but I think it's a drier, less humid climate, certainly than Vietnam. Um, so if he's looking at this Paspalum in Morocco and it's, you know, the climate there is hot, it's dry. And he's looking at this Paspalum and he says, well, this is dry and lean and it's great. So extrapolating from that, you should keep your paspalum dry and lean and it will be as great as this Moroccan golf course. Mm, yeah. I, there's something interesting about paspalum that uh, I, I speculate here, but the places where I've seen it really thrive and, and compete well against Bermuda and provide a really nice surface on fairways without, um, getting invaded too much where it'll actually invade the Bermuda and, and yet it still be relatively dry is places like the Canary islands, the Hawaiian islands, um, areas 
of the world that have a climate that isn't quite as hot as what you'd get as you get closer to the equator. Mm. And I, I think there's there could be something, just like with Kuyu grass, I think Kaikuyu grass in Da Nang would probably not grow very well. I have some Kaikuyu grass growing at my home in southern Thailand, if it's still alive. Um, it, it's, it's trying to die. And the Kaikuyu grass I planted at the Asian Turfgrass Research Facility that I had from 2006 to 2009, it also died. It just couldn't grow well. But if you go to Dalat in Vietnam, you will find lots of Kaikuyu grass. And Dalat is... Uh, 1,500 meters or higher, isn't it? Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's it, it, people are growing bent grass there, so it's it's kind of central highlands area. It is a completely different climate to the um, to the rest of the country, basically. So you you get to a place like that, or in India, um, or in Sri Lanka, uh, as you go up to places at an elevation of about a thousand meters to 1500 meters as you're driving the roads up to these um hill stations you will all of a sudden start to see kaikuyu grass growing on the roads uh, on the sides of the roads and then on the golf courses that they'll have up at the hill stations it will often be a primarily kaikuyu grass surface and what i'm uh trying to get to the point of with this meandering story is that Kaikuyu grass, although it's classified as a warm season grass and it has a C4 photosynthetic pathway, so it technically is a warm season grass, it actually does not thrive at high temperatures like Bermuda grass does and like zoysia grass does. And I speculate that seashore paspala may be not, not as severely or I mean, not to the same degree that Kaikuyu grass is, that it, it does better at a temperature of 25 degrees rather than 30 degrees. But I wonder if, if seashore paspalum is in a grass that does better at 27 degrees or 28 degrees rather than at 29 or 30 or, or 32 degrees. And so it, it could be something like that where seashore paspalum does great in Hawaii where it's a bit cooler, does great in the Canary Islands or does great in Morocco, where on average it would be a bit cooler than that, the tropical to, heat you'd have in Singapore. Just to butt in, is that because the Paspalum likes that temperature or is it, because, is it because the competing plants don't like that weather? So I'm kind of inverting your well, they're Well, they're both growing together, aren't they? So if... I would have to consult some uh, ecology textbooks or research that I'm not uh, not an expert on, but they're both growing in that same uh, temperature, aren't they? So you're one of them is going to be relatively stronger than the other, or relatively more competitive than the other at that particular temperature, and we we. If you think about cool season grasses, for example, I was just in New Zealand and the the golf course superintendents who I talked with in New Zealand, or or some of them, they said they would consider Agrostis stolonifera, creeping bent grass, to be almost a warm season grass, where brown top bent grass or poa annua or fine fescue will grow better at a temperature of like 16 or 18 degrees. But for yeah, but for for creeping bent grass, it'll grow good at it won't grow so good at eighteen, but it'll grow better at twenty two or twenty four, and I and I saw that on some courses. It's um, it's late winter or or early spring in New Zealand, and I saw some bent grass greens that had poa annua in them, and the there's um, it's a striking th three dimensional view of those greens because the Poa annua is growing up so much, and the creeping bent grass is not growing in those temperatures. Yeah, and I so completely agree with that idea. That's why you don't get creeping bent in in England. Um, I I may be wrong here. Maybe I think it was tried at East Sussex National originally. I could be completely wrong with that, but uh, yeah, you don't see creeping bent in England. It's 
it's not common. I, there's there's creeping bent grass in Ireland. There's creeping bent grass in Sweden. But in general, the brown top bents are going, or the uh, Americans might call that colonial bent grass. It's going to tend to grow better in uh, slightly cooler weather. And speaking of brown top bent, uh, I saw some just amazing surfaces of that down in New Zealand. It's uh, it's really fine and uh, quite a nice, it, an attractive grass to putt on. Sure. I think all us warm season grass growers do feel a tinge of jealousy whenever we see a, a nice bent grass surface because I can verticut and I can increase my rates of primo and I can lower my nitrogen, but I will never be as fine as a, as a nice bent grass surface. So, uh, yeah, I, I aim for it, but I know I'll never hit that. Yeah, well, with yeah, warm season grass management is uh, it's a lot of work. It, it, I mean, preparing a surface of any grass is a lot of work, but when you have the long growing season and the when you're working with a grass that just has a coarse leaf blade to begin with, to get it mown that short to make the surface smooth enough to be able to mow it that short, to be able to have the mower set up just perfectly. It's, uh, I think it, one could it's make an argument that it's more work. Um, yes. Yeah, just ultimately with, with Paspalum, the, the more leaf surface you have, uh, the higher the frictive quality, the, the grippier the leaf is, there's simply more of it interacting with the ball. And that's why so many people find Paspalum sticky because if a green is, you know, at 3.2 mm or, you know, that's kind of a common, if, if I visit a random Paspalum course here, the green will be at approximately 3.2. So it, it is noticeable how, you know, the ball sits down or how just how you can get a ball to stop from, you know, almost any kind of shot, whether it's fairway or rough, it will, even if it's a firm green, it will stop very, very quickly. How often do you sand top dress the greens? uh depending on the uh depending on if our top dress is working ideally uh once a week i do a I do a light dusting okay so I, i'm i'm maybe not as progressive as some others in regards to um yeah greens top dressing and i know at the very tip of the spear guys are top dressing less frequently now and they you know they could even argue that it you know isn't necessary but uh i haven't found that yet so i'm i'm continuing on a, a weekly dusting program that is wonderful i the the course in bangkok panya intra that i've visited uh that they've had cl 2000 greens for i think 17 years um or 18 years and they're on a weekly top dressing program as far as i know and those are consistently excellent surfaces and they're some of the firmest surfaces in bangkok the um the organic content in those surfaces is um, quite consistent and low and the grass is healthy so uh, that certainly works although i think i think it's really useful to try to make measurements of the organic matter over time and if you do that and you know how much sand you've put then you can calculate what the or the rate of change of organic matter in the soil is. You can calculate how rapidly the grass is creating organic matter. And from that, you can fine tune the sand amounts because I think that we should put as much sand as, as is required, but no more. So just like we've been talking about water and what dry is or what, uh, what is healthy dry or something, and we talk about the amount of nutrients required, the amount of nitrogen necessary to create a particular growth rate. I think on the sand side, we can also fine tune that um, rather than going on a calendar schedule. So just like you adjust your, now you adjust your nitrogen rates, you said, or, or your fertilizer application based on how much the grass is growing above ground. And I think by looking at playability, and adding in that organic matter measurement underground, you can also adjust the dressing rates. So that's kind of where I go with that. And I've been surprised. I've been really surprised at how 
little the organic matter changes in the soil at a few sites where this has been measured over time as they've decreased their sand top dressing. Sure. I, I think and, that's absolutely correct. One thing that I do think that top dressing does is it, how to phrase it, it maintains a connectivity of the surface to the soil. And so, you know, there's, there's a connection of sand, right? You know, from the very top of the surface, you know, down to the bottom of the roots. Whereas if you, in my mind, if you stop top dressing for a period of time, you lose that connection. And from there, there is opportunity for, for algae, for thatch, for a variety of performance issues to arise. I see. And that's why um, regular measurement of the performance of the surfaces allows one to hopefully catch. Uh, I mean, you're measuring what's happening in the soil, you're measuring the performance of the surfaces, and you're measuring the work that's been done to them. So as this, uh, as this fails, one is going to catch it visually and one is going to catch it in some of those data not being as good as they should have been. Sure. But and, oh, yeah, sorry, I mean, hopefully, one... hopefully one catches it before the surfaces deteriorate. Sure. And sorry, one last point is that paspalum with sand on it is less sticky than paspalum without sand on it. So, you know, in the in the middle of an afternoon, if I'm hitting a hundred yard shot onto a onto a paspalum green, I don't mind seeing that little puff of sand when the ball lands. Um, you know, th that to me is almost ideal. I'm not talking a big explosion of sand, of course, but a little a little one. Um, that tells me that the surface is not going to be sticky. If I had a a one day one day tournament, I would not be afraid at all to put a light coating of sand on the green that morning. I actually did that for the opening of our Nicholas course. I gave some people heart palpitations, I think, but uh, it yeah, it creates a less sticky surface. That is good to hear, and I suppose you've top dressed recently in advance of this tournament. Yes, Friday. So. Uh, six days before the no, sorry five days before the first day of competition well that that's exciting i'm uh definitely gonna watch i hope uh, you'll be able to share some photos on your twitter feed or on your instagram um and it, if that is going to be on youtube i hope you'll tweet out a link to that so that anybody that's interested can watch and see how the ball reacts both bouncing and rolling um and and uh rolling very true on on these past palum greens sure i'll check the footage to make sure it's fit for consumption first but uh yeah i'm sure i'll be uh tweeting or posting that awesome that's that's something that i am looking forward to seeing so um what else about the work do you have any volunteers or are you going to be able to handle you said you're going to do a double cut and um, and a roll. And do you have enough people to do all the work or, or you have some? Um, I have the luxury. Well, it's the luxury of being a 36-hole facility and that we are not short of staff. Uh, we're more short of equipment than we are staff. So I'm, of course, moving, you know, landscape staff and uh, the Norman course staff over to Nicholas for the, you know, morning and afternoon shifts this week. So, yeah, I, I you know, honestly, I'm... I have plenty of people to do uh, all the tasks that need doing. Awesome. Well, John, it has been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you on the eve of the tournament for having a little bit of a debate with me about seashore paspalum and its characteristics and, and how it grows and how it should and uh, perhaps should not be maintained. And also uh, sharing with us about the work that you've done to uh, put Paspalum Greens in, why you did that, how you're managing it, and a little bit about the tournament. I am absolutely fascinated by this type of stuff that I often use a turf tourism hashtag with um, because I think it's so interesting about different grasses, different way that they're managed around the world. And I know you're interested in that stuff too from the places that you go and uh, the 
like your unsolicited, uh, nobody asked for it reviews of out of the way golf courses in Vietnam, which I, I think that stuff is great. So yeah, it's, thank it's been you. a pleasure talking to you about it. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that they put Pass Palom on the greens at the Himalayan Golf Club. Um, that's still one of the most insane grass choices I've ever seen. Not, you know, not to say that the greens were terrible or anything, but uh, maybe we can touch on that next time. <laughs> the, the, that is an insane grass choice. And yeah, I, I really haven't thought about Paspalum so much because there was a time where it was like used, uh, grossly overused and people thought it could be used for anything. And in India, they were putting it in like on, um, there was a guy trying to put it in as the, the grass around airport runway. So like, I think Bangalore was building a new airport or, or something. And so he was going to sell sea spray and make a killing and plant it around all the runways, but it's just not going to work. You seashore pass works when you maintain it. It's, mm. it's a grass that stays alive when you intensively maintain it and you mow it short but the higher the mowing height gets in southeast asia and the less maintenance that it gets the more rapidly it the paspalum disappear. disappears and it becomes it, it gets replaced by some of those other grasses that you listed so it's, it's been pretty absurd um but then zoys has kind of taken over so now there's not so many of these uh bad paspalum cases that i i need to write about on my blog so instead i just try to provide accurate information about zoysia grass and uh, water use and temperature adaptation and that sort of thing well you're doing a fine job at it micah so uh, well done well thank you john have a great week um enjoy the tournament i hope it's it's good weather and everything goes smooth and I will look forward to watching and uh, seeing the course looking so good. Thanks very much. Yeah. Great stuff, Micah. All right. Thanks everyone for watching and or listening. This, uh, this was a very warm season grass and uh, Southeast Asia management focused uh, double cut and this is something that I'm so interested in and I hope you all are too because uh, probably if you're listening to this you're quite into grass so if you're into grass and how it's maintained around the world this is the show for you all right thank you very much uh, I will sign off and I'll be back with another double cut very soon I, I have a number of interesting ones lined up for ATC from Fukuoka, Japan, I'm Michael Woods.